0: Welcome to season two of Game Design Unboxed on the No Direction Network, sponsored by GPI. Danielle talks to tabletop game designers about the games they've made. Together, they unbox how the game went from inspiration to publication.
1: Thank you for joining me, Danielle, for Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication, episode 26, Raccoon Tycoon. Today, we are joined by Glenn Drover, owner of Forbidden Games and designer of Railroad Tycoon, Age of Mythology, Conquest of the Empire, Attack Napoleon in Europe, War, Age of Imperialism, and so, so many more games. Thank you for joining us.
0: Oh, it's my pleasure, Dania.
1: Well, just to get us started, how did you get into the game design community?
0: Uh, I guess like a lot of gamers, I was um, a big gamer, kind of cross-pollinated gamer uh, back in the 70s when I was you know, pre-teen and teenager. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, war games, uh, you know, Avalon Hills, strategy games, um, Axis and Allies, really everything. And, um, so, you know, being a gamer, you're always interested in designing your own games. So even at you know, the age of 10, 11, 12, I was designing games. And so as I was heading out of college, uh, with my liberal arts degree, I thought, well, wouldn't it be cool to be a game designer in the video game industry? Um, and I kind of set my sights on companies like EA and Microprose, um, and reached out and contacted them um, and didn't hear anything back. So kind of backburned that idea and took a job in the steel industry yeah. uh, here in Chicago just to pay the bills, but kept kind of reaching out. And eventually, um, Micro-Pros had an open kind of day where they said, Hey, it's open house. Um, we're looking for talent. If you can get out here where we would like to meet with you. And, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. I, I was able to fly out to Baltimore area where they were based in Hunt Valley, Maryland. And I kind of just plunked myself down in the lobby and they're like, Oh, you know, who are you here to see? And I was like, well, I don't know, I guess HR or, you know, I'm here to kind of try out for a a game design position. And uh, they saw me, they, they kind of shuttled me into uh, the head of the studio, uh, talked with him. Uh, His name was Steve Myers back at the time. And um, they kind of bounced me around and I did a bunch of, of kind of impromptu interviews and they were asking me what my credentials were. And I said, well, I don't have any published games yet, but, you know, I've been designing games since I was a kid and I'm an avid gamer. And the industry was so young at the time that they actually offered me a job.
1: Oh, wow. Really? Did you have any prototypes or any like concepts to show them?
0: I had nothing. I oh. completely, you know, just just exploratory, right? I didn't realize that I should bring a portfolio. I was... Pretty young and naive, um, but yeah, they liked me and they said, hey, you know, we're looking for people who are just really avid and the job that they offered me was in uh, QA. So quality assurance testing, but with a caveat that I would be kind of um, mentored by Sid Meyer. And I was like over the moon because he's an absolute genius, you know, pirates, railroad tycoon, civilization. And I'm like, oh my God. This is a dream job. Yeah. And so I got on the plane and I flew home and I told my new wife that it was a success and they offered me a job. And she's like, how much is the paycheck? And I said, it's not very much. It's 16000 a year. And she looked at me and she said, really? Um, how am I going to move away from my friends and family? So you can play games for a living for $16,000 a year.
1: It's funny. I've had that exact question asked of me before. How did you respond? <laughs> well, I
0: I was crestfallen. I, I mean, my jaw just dropped. It never even occurred to me that she wouldn't want to follow my dreams, right? That's how like self-focused I was at that moment. So funny. Yeah,
1: partnerships.
0: <laughs> just, yeah, right? And, and so I, I was like, oh my God, I guess, yeah, how can I ask her to do that when, you know, that that's like essentially minimum wage almost. But it was, a, it, it was an entry level job into kind of my chosen profession into the industry that I loved and wanted to be a part of. And I, we talked about it for a bit. And ultimately, I turned it down. I called them and I said, it makes me ill, but I have to turn it down. My wife doesn't want to relocate and I just can't do it for that money. And I'm, I was I was like so sick to my stomach. And lucky for me, they liked me. And a couple months later, they called me and said, hey, we're expanding our sales team. And you could stay in Chicago. Would you consider working in a sales role? And I thought, well, yeah, I mean, I've been doing sales in the steel thing. And at least it's a an entry, an entree into the industry. And so I accepted the job and worked my way up over the years um, in on the business side of the video game industry, all the while continuing to play games and design my little prototypes and that sort of thing. And um, eventually, uh, after 10 years in the industry working for Microprose and Maxis and Activision, I ultimately decided I was going to quit my sales job and start my own publishing company to publish the designs that I've been working. Totally, again, like out of the blue, like no real experience running a game company, no real experience in the... Hobby game industry. Um, I did some legwork. I went to some shows, Gen Con, and various things, and talked to people who who did run these companies. I, I and I was living in Minnesota, uh, working for Activision at that moment. And so I said, you know, I, I contacted Christian Peterson, and he was nice enough to see me, and he gave me some input, and some you know, some pointers. And uh, I launched Eagle Games in in 2000, just completely cold, completely just without. Almost any resources. I wrote a business plan and launched the company. And published, started publishing games.
1: And what was the first game you published?
0: It was called War Age of Imperialism, and it was awful. Um, it would have been a good computer. <laughs> yeah, it would have been a good computer game um, because it was just. It had so much stuff in it. It was just big and raw pink, but it had plastic miniatures. It was a you know kind of a throwback to those Axis and Allies kind of games, um, kind of Simon before Simon was Simon. <laughs> Um, and that was kind of our shtick. We, we, we had really interesting art, big, giant game boards, and, like, miniatures and lots of dice, and it was kind of a Ameritrashy. And I quickly learned after publishing a couple of those that, you know, games that had historical themes but were really Ameritrashy games, that this Euro game, you know, phenomenon was happening. You know, Settlers was out and popular, and... and uh, Carcassonne and games like that. And I was like, wow, I really can learn something from these types of designs. And, you know, I just became a student of those games played a bunch of them and started appreciating the elegance and the you know clever mechanics and the lack of luck um and the just really smooth game design um that these new euro games had and kind of adopted it and ultimately published a game called age of empires 3 which was kind of my first euro design that was a pure euro and people really liked it and from that point on um I was kind of hooked on those kinds of games.
1: That's so amazing. And then how did you go from there all the way to where you are now with Forbidden Games?
0: So um, after uh, we published, uh, so one of the the hooks that we had at at Eagle was um, that we were doing video game licenses as board games. So we did um, Railroad Tycoon, which became Railways of the World. Um, I designed that with Martin Wallace. Uh, we did Age of Empires 3, which was of course a PC license. We were working on Pirates, uh, Sid Meier's Pirates, when we sold the company. And we actually had done also the um, the original Sid Meyer Civilization board game um, that was published in like 04, I think, or '05. Um, it wasn't also wasn't very good. It was before we really I had really learned how to do this, it, you know more elegant streamlined game designs. So it wasn't very good, but it sold like 85,000 copies at, at like 60 bucks a crack. So, you know, it, it, it was pretty and it, it was Sid Meier Civilization. So people actually bought it, but it was, to me, it wasn't a really good game design.
1: I think that's important that you know the difference though.
0: Yeah. I mean, I, you, you become very honest with yourself um, and, you know, the public is also going to be very honest with you. You know, you're going to get lots of feedback from people who appreciate good game design, and they'll be happy to tell you when your game has flaws.
1: Especially in the age of internet. Yeah,
0: yeah. So, but it's, it's really good, right? As a designer, being open to that feedback is really the best thing you can do for yourself, is, to, is, is just don't resist it. Everyone smile. If I think someone's being unfair or they're not right about the criticism, I'll push back on it and say, yeah, that's actually not true. The game was meticulously balanced or this or that. But back then, people were hitting me with honest feedback that was right on the money. And I learned a lot by listening and adjusting and changing my approach. And ultimately, we sold the company um, in 2006 to the current owners over at Eagle Griffin. And I went back to the video game business. Because uh, money, it, it's it's but apparently it's much more lucrative um, over there than it is in kind of a hobby game channel for the yeah. most part. And so I went back and worked for a company called PopCap um, as their national their North American sales director, um, selling games like Plants vs Zombies and Bejeweled um, into Target and Walmart and uh, GameStop and, and, and retailers like that. And I did that for about seven years. Lived in Seattle for a bit, um, and then. Um, Came back to Chicago and just commuted. Yeah, all the whole time though, I was consist- constantly working on new game designs. So during that seven years, I actually, you know, was dabbling in ideas, never really did a full design, but I got pulled back in by a buddy of mine. And he's like, hey, I really would like to do a game design with you. And so once um, PopCap was acquired by Electronic Arts, Um, I did a final two years with them at EA, and then um, I was redundant. So I'm like, okay, what am I going to do next? And ultimately decided to start another game company. And that's where we founded Forbidden.
1: That's amazing. That's such a story.
0: It's it's, Yeah, it's a long career kind of bouncing back and forth in the game industry, but in two very different kind of quadrants of of the industry. So Raccoon Tycoon is uh, kind of an economic game. Um, but the intention of the game was that you can always do something fun on your turn. Um, we can talk about the inspiration for that in a minute, but you basically can do one of five things on your turn. One is to collect uh, some uh, resources, and there's six different resources in the game. And they're kind of all those industrial resources that a lot of these Euro games have. you get iron and coal and wheat and lumber and those kinds of things finished goods and luxury goods. And uh, you collect goods, that's one uh, option. And when you collect the goods, the prices of some other goods go up in the marketplace. And then when you sell goods, you can sell one um, of the six goods on your turn and you get money based on the value it is in the marketplace. So if it's gone up to say eight, and you have four of them, right, you would get $32. But then the, the price would drop one spot for every or $1 for every unit you sold. So that's kind of how that marketplace works. And those are the two of the five actions and how you make money.
1: I was gonna say, how did you come up with that sliding scale of commodities? It's so unique. And I love it.
0: Yeah, I don't I don't remember what kind of inspired I was looking to to have kind of a marketplace. Um, And, you know, I was I was thinking, again, the whole kind of Driving force of the game was, you know, that you have a limited number of, of unique actions and you can choose one of them, but you can always do it. Um, so I was trying to think, okay, if a player uh, takes their action and they collect some resources, how might that work and how might that affect the the price in the market? Um, so yeah, I mean, I always wanted to have a sliding scale. Um, to represent uh, the you know the fluctuation of those goods. I don't know, it just kind of just really just popped in my head that that's how it should work, that the market should rise and fall. Yeah. And it was really a question of how, you know, what would cause that. And at first, we had this interesting mechanic that I loved, but it was really kludgy, where you put... Some, some cubes um, in the bag that had different colors, each representing the different commodities. And we would draw them out for um, the price going up and then you would draw them out for which things you collected. And so it really was perfect because if, if you drew some out to collect the goods, that means there were fewer of those particular goods in the bag. So um, you would get things that the price wouldn't go up, right? If so, the more of something you took, the price wouldn't go up. Yeah. And the things that you didn't take that weren't taken, would the price would go up. So it would drive that perfect supply and demand equation. But it was a pain in the butt for the players to have to constantly be drawing things out of the bag. And so it was, it was this amazing mechanic that I fell in love with and ultimately had to abandon um, because it just wasn't fun. It was too much work and it was fiddly. And so as a designer, it's one of those things where you're like, you, you just absolutely love a mechanic, but from a playability standpoint, you have to change it or abandon it. And ultimately we just went with a simple card. So you would hold, Uh, a hand of three cards and you could play one of them and on the top of the card was what you got and on the bottom was what commodities would go up in value so it was not quite as perfectly balanced but I did balance the deck you know mathematically so that over the course of the whole deck um it was at least balanced but you know in each card it wasn't it was really sort of random
1: okay and then for the other actions you could take on your turn what are they
0: so those are, these are the ones where you can kind of cash in with, with the money or commodities that you have. And they're the things that drive um, both the, the scoring and the kind of engine building. Uh, so the first one is um, where you can take a tile that's out there. We call them building tiles. And they, the thematically, they are things like a warehouse... Or a, you know, a factory, or a um, you know governor's mansion, or things like that that can each have a theme, and then they give you a special ability where you can either be more productive, you can make some money. Um, there's there's one that basically anytime there's an auction, you make money because you're the ones you know kind of holding the auction, the auction house, and it also allows you to some of them allow you to score points. Um, so productivity, money, and points. But it's, they're all unique abilities and they're all fairly powerful. So you're building your small little engine of unique special abilities. Um, Even though the game is fairly simple, every time you play the game, it's different. So that's the third action in how you spend money. You buy those buildings with money. So you've earned your money in the market, and then you can spend it um, to gain those things. And they're all worth like one point at the end of the game, so you score at a lot of points.
1: I have to ask, with the money that you have, it's very Monopoly-esque. Did you, during your playtesting, steal Monopoly money?
0: Oh, we absolutely did. Our prototype had Monopoly money. Beautiful. For sure. And, and and kind of taking a step back for a second, um, we wanted that. Um, kind of the, the idea of this particular game was you know, inspired by Catan and also Monopoly. We were like, okay, Catan, you can do things on your, do one thing on your turn, but you can't always act, right? That was the frustration was sometimes if you don't roll the right number and you don't have the right things, you have to pass in Catan. And it's very frustrating to wait for your turn and then not be able to do something. Um, so it was a direct response to the popularity of Catan, but also what we saw as an opportunity to kind of fix the thing that's a little bit frustrating with that game.
1: Oh, yeah. But I have 100% percent home Catan based off of the Starfarer version, where in the very early game, you can just randomly get something if you don't roll, because it feels a lot better, especially to the players. It does,
0: right? Because at least then you, there was a purpose to your turn, that and, and you weren't just, you know, oh, I pass. And it's oh. just, ugh, it's, it's a horrible feeling. So, yeah, we, we basically were looking at two of the most popular economic games of all time. Monopoly and Catan and saying, okay, what's really good about these games? What do people love? And in Monopoly, it's set collection, but it's money. It's that ability to hold a big wad of cash and, you know, buy things or just kind of accumulate it. And you're just sitting there with this giant pile of cash. So when we ran the Kickstarter, a lot of the backers were like, we hate paper money. You can't have paper money in this game. And we're like, oh, we're having paper money, but it will be great money. So we actually made this really high quality, almost plastic, um, durable money. That's paper, but not. It's it's very very high quality um, paper money.
1: I remember seeing that in a Dice Tower review. It's like, oh, it's paper money, but it's really good paper money, which just made me kind of <laughs> laugh.
0: <laughs> yeah, and, and that was the kind of the compromise is we didn't want crappy paper money for like Monopoly money too, where it feels fake and it feels like it'll 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 you know tear or crumple or bend and you know at the end of the day you're like well this is kind of junky we wanted something that felt almost like euros like it has got that smooth slick you know colorful look and feel to it and so that's where we ended up with the production of it. It really turned out well.
1: I completely agree. And so then what inspired you to design this game? I mean, you said you talked a little bit about Monopoly and Catan, but was that the main inspiration for it?
0: It it was. I mean, um, given that I decided to come back in the industry and start designing games again... I was thinking, okay, if we're going to do this, we're going to do this a little differently. Um, initially, when we had Eagle, we wanted to create these gamer games, really games for hardcore gamers, and we made these big, rules-heavy, you know, strategy games that were just, you know, six hours to play. And after a while, we realized, okay, the market for that is shrinking, not growing. And where we saw an opportunity in the marketplace was in gateway games right you've got ticket to ride blowing up and you've got you know obviously the, the games we already mentioned and you've got other other games that can reach a huge audience because they're approachable and they always have some cooks or some things that are really clever and fun about them and they have some depth and replayability but they're not hard to learn so when we were launching forbidden we said let's create a line of games that's essentially gateway that appeals to gamers. But really the appeal is that gamers can play them with non-gamers and everyone's enjoying it. And so that was the inspiration initially was let's create games that that really are fun and appealing to the broadest possible audience, including gamers. We don't want to just make, you know, a game that's only appealing to people who don't play games because that's not really... Wise, um you're going to sell a product to someone who doesn't really appreciate the product. But yeah, if you look at the success of, of, of games like Ticket to Ride, and you're like, man, it just it was just a simple, clever game that brings people into gaming. So that was the kind of the the in, the initial idea, and the specific inspiration was one night when my wife played Catan for the first time, and this kind of circles back around to something I mentioned earlier, where she had that exact experience where she wasn't enjoying the game because she wasn't able to do things and she was losing badly. You know, the the, the other lady we were playing with, we were playing with another couple. She and I knew how to play the game and we were optimizing and the other two were just getting killed and they weren't able to do things. And so they really weren't having fun. And even if you're going to lose a game, you shouldn't necessarily not be having fun doing the thing. Yeah. And so that was the real inspiration was I was like, okay, I'm going to create a game that has this... You know, flavor of c- Catan will have commodities and, and, and things and an economic engine, but it'll be simple and easy to learn and you always will be able to do something at your turn. So it was really that experience of playing Catan for the very first time with my wife, um, where I could see things from her perspective instead of from a lifelong gamer's
1: perspective. Now, that's awesome. And what inspired the name of the game? Um,
0: yes, yeah, it's, it's, it's really interesting that uh, that was my business partner. Um, the other, the co-founder of the company, uh, was the designer and inventor of Bejeweled. Um, he's kind of a silent partner, but he's, you know, he's in the games. He's a game designer and, um, he's, uh, he gave me some really good input on a few things when we started the company. one of them was this, the name of this game. We were kind of spitballing, trying to find a, a memorable name, you know? So you want something that's got a mnemonic to it, or it's, you know, it's at least, different enough from other games there's so many games out there right everything just kind of you know mushes into the crowd of you know of other titles True. so you, you need something that breaks out of the you know the crowd and is different and raccoon tycoon um i i had wanted the theme of these anthropomorphic animals because Again, the the market, the consumer we were looking for was a more casual gamer, including the female gamers. And female gamers are often left behind when theme is, is, is being kind of determined by the designer because a lot of designers are men and we like, you know, sci-fi and fantasy and history and all these all these ideas and themes and railroads or whatever. And women, you know, they'll tolerate that stuff, you know, especially if they're into it. But, you know, a lot of times women are just not considered uh, when themes for a game are, are, are being discussed or decided. So intentionally we wanted something that wasn't only aimed at women but would certainly appeal to them so the setting was meant to be this world where these anthropomorphic animals lived in a Victorian timeline and dressed in these you know Victorian outfits and we found an amazing amazing artist Annie Stegg who was already uh, had done a badger who was in a like a, a waistcoat and a top hat and a, had a a, a pocket watch and I was like, oh my god, that's it. That's 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 the prototypical animal for this game, for the characters. And we approached her and you know she was willing to work with us and she just knocked it out of the park. The the imagery and the art in this game is phenomenal and each of the animals is a a unique hand-painted oil painting.
1: I was wondering how they did it. That is so cool. I know when I was walking around Gen Con, I had one of the little animals. um, What is the kitty called? The little white cat? Um, we yeah. call her the
0: Fat Cat because she's, she's yeah. for the expansion. But I, gosh, I, something mittens—I think it was the name that she was given.
1: Okay, yeah, I was walking around, had that pin on my badge, and I had many, many people come up, going like, "Where'd you get that? Can I buy that off of you?" And I was like, "Yes." <laughs> it was like, "Oh my god!" I had no idea that I'm shark bait with this pin on me. <laughs>
0: yeah, I've got those pins. I should start wearing them.
1: <laughs> Clearly, yeah. No, I mean. People appreciate that artwork. It definitely stands out on the shelf.
0: Yeah, it does. And, and and that's obviously the other part from a commercial standpoint is, yeah, you want something that pops. You want something that's really uh, better than than the standard uh, artwork, which is hard to do. Because frankly, in the last 15, 10, 15 years, um, look and feel and artwork in hobby game uh, industry has gone way up in quality. So it's hard to... Be better than average these days.
1: Yeah, I have noticed with your packaging, you do the red kind of on the sides and you have a very specific look to all of your games. So you can tell that it's part of a collection. When did you guys decide to do that as your branding?
0: Just right out the gate. Um, again, I've spent almost 30 years now selling to retail and dealing with merchandising and, and marketing um, at a mass market level. And it's important to have a line look, especially if you hope to have multiple pro- products on the shelf at once because if you it, it not only has a good shelf presence but if a customer buys one of your products and likes it so if, if raccoon tycoon you know which is actually on the shelf at target right now is a success and someone buys it and likes it they know that there's other games from the same publisher there, and they'll come back and give you repeat business and that was um, a tactic we used at PopCap, and I saw it work really, really well.
1: No, oh, that's amazing because I feel like I rarely see that unless it is a one specific game that has a ton of different expansions or just built off of the singular game, not necessarily the company itself.
0: Yeah, it's like I said, it's it's really a strategic uh, branding approach um, for uh, for retail. Um, you've, if you if your approach is aimed at retail, which for us this. Gateway uh, product line really is. Uh, we'll do a Kickstarter for it, but that's you know just really to kind of kick it off and, and start um, awareness building um, and to kind of determine how much the initial print run should be and that sort of thing but really the long-term strategy for the company and the product line was to get these products on the shelf obviously at game stores but also in uh, larger chains because that's where you're going to get the the numbers and the foot traffic to support a higher quality product and and that's really where we were headed right from the start we wanted a game that would you know appeal to mom uh, the mom shopper at target and you know the 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 game, the casual game shopper, you know, really anywhere go, to the game store, Barnes and Noble, um, all those retailers or retailers we work.
1: And would you say that Raccoon Tycoon is that game of all the ones in your line that is most appropriate for like a target?
0: So far, yes. I mean, they saw that. I saw that. That was when I was kind of putting the game together. I, I had that in mind. And this is the—that's the first one that they took, and it's really um, this is the first holiday season that the game is on the shelf, and it's done extremely well so far. They've been really excited. It was in a test in 25% of their stores, and already within the first month, they came back and said, "Yeah, we definitely want to bring this chainwide next." Uh, for next holiday.
1: That's so amazing. Congratulations.
0: Thank you. Yeah, we were pretty pleased. <laughs> like I said, it was the objective uh, from day one, and it's if we had failed, it would have been a, a big disappointment.
1: For sure. And then the expansion, the Fat Cat expansion, what does that add to the gameplay?
0: So it, it kind of adds some um, some gameplay elements and some content designed to make the game a little deeper and richer for gamers. Um, so it's basically like an add-on kit to, to upgrade the game so there's more replayability there's more depth there's more strategies so every player will get a really nice player board uh, with insets uh, for placing their resources and their building tiles um, and we implemented some new um, some new wooden, Kind of meeples, uh, animeeples, uh, that do different things when you combine them with houses, and, and we didn't talk about the other two ways to score, actually. So no. in Raccoon Tycoon you can score also um, by collecting sets of the railroads, and you acquire those in an auction. So the game has an auction mechanic where you will, um, if it's your turn, you can put uh, one of the two railroad cards that's on the, on the board, you put it up for auction, and then, you know, this is where the money really comes in because it becomes like your arsenal. You know, if you're really cashed up and the other players aren't, you're going to be able to acquire exactly the, um, uh, the railroad that you want. Uh, and if you're not really the richest player at that moment, you kind of have a sense of it because you don't know what everyone's holding. You might have a false auction where you auction off when you don't really want to suck the money out of the supply. Um, so the auction is really a fun kind of, you know, it, it's where the competition and the player interaction is, is at its highest. And then if you have um, two or three or four of the same railroad, you're scoring an increasing number of points. So basically you're trying to collect as many of, of the same railroad as you can. So you can see what the other players are doing. You're like, okay, I see they've got two of that one. I can't let them win this auction. But if they have the most money, there's no way to stop, right? So really the, the, the acquisition of cash has a purpose. You're using it to build your engine, but you're also using it to... You know, have enough power to win the auctions. You need to win, and so timing matters a great deal in the game. When you get your money, what you spend it on, and what your you know position is vis-a-vis the other players. And then the last action, the fifth action, is purchasing a town. Um, so you got the railroads and the town cards. The town cards um, are cute little forest you know homes for the animals, and they are acquired through um commodities so just you don't have to cash the commodities in for money you can actually spend the raw commodities to build these these houses or these towns and that will let you score some points and the, the the deck goes up in value as you go down deeper into the game but then the costs in commodities goes up so it's a way for you even if you're not cashing in you if you have some commodities that aren't really matching you can you can dump them into Uh, buying these town cards that have the the increase in value and then you get a bonus for every town and railroad card that you match so it's kind of you know thematically saying oh we're linking towns with rail so you're always you can't just do a bunch of railroad auctions and do money you can't just buy a bunch of town cards you're really going to maximize your scoring by having some of both
1: and then the expansion just makes that a little bit more on the like gamer side so that way they can get a little bit more out of it versus just a casual target buyer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So yeah, there's more, um, there are more building tiles. There are, um, these, um, uh, like I said, anime that you can acquire, um, that you can combine with your town cards or combine with your buildings or combine with your railroads to score more points, uh, get more money and different things. Um, and, um, Gosh, it's been a while since I played it. I don't, I don't even have a copy. It's so hard to find now. We printed a limited uh, quantity of them, and they sold out, and I don't even own a copy. So it's we had some at Essen uh, that were in our European warehouse, and we sold those out as well. But there's there's a, a pretty nice um, additional content, and then we made it a big box so you can put the original game contents in there as well, along with the, uh, the new rules and, and the new... Um, components.
1: Oh, interesting. So the expansion was actually the larger box to hold the original game? I feel like normally the original game was just made larger to hold an expansion in the future.
0: Yeah, we we weren't that smart. We we, made the <laughs> box. we never intended there to be an expansion because it was a gateway, but there was a lot of demand. The game's very popular and people were like, "Hey, we want more stuff. And we want, you know, new ways to play the game." So we were like, "Yeah, okay, let's do an expansion." And so on the Kickstarter, we we offered the the kind of the mega box as one of the upgrades, and it basically comes with um, the new components and rules and everything and the new boards, the player boards, but uh, leaves a lot of empty space with a really nice insert so that you can put all the components from the, the original premium um, wood component version of the game in there as well.
1: Very cool. And did much of what you took out of your original playtesting and development of the original game go into the expansion? I know a lot of times designers will be like, oh, this is really cool, but it kind of adds a little too much. And then you save it for an expansion. Or was this something that the game just did so well, you came up with an expansion for it later on? Yeah, it was the latter.
0: Um, Really, we weren't thinking about an expansion. The, 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 The design for the original game was always kind of simple and elegant and really didn't change a whole lot um, other than that one mechanic that I mentioned about the drawing the goods out of the bag. Um, It was always meant to be simple, and so we never really over-designed it. It was always meant to be, you know, this kind of simple, elegant game that would feel very much, you know, um, of the complexity level of a Catan or or Monopoly. And I say Monopoly, but it's really kind of an old game with about data mechanics, but
1: yeah.
0: you know, really that level where you can teach the game in really just a few minutes um, and the depth and the you know, strategy of the game is just built in. You don't have to learn all kinds of rules.
1: So cool. And I know you had mentioned the bag and like grabbing different um, components outside of it. Was there anything else that changed during the playtesting and development of the original game? Not really.
0: I mean, again, it was, we, I, it was almost born whole, uh, with that one exception. Um, and again, it took us a long time to take that out, because I really resisted. The other players were like, game's great, it's a lot of fun, but yeah, that bag has to go. And I was like, no, man, no, I love that bag. And it, finally, after you know, literally a year and a half of playtesting, I was convinced that it was just too annoying and kludgy to constantly be drawing things out of the bag to adjust the market. And I gave it up. And uh, thank God I did because, yeah, <laughs> the game's better and more fun and, and faster. And, and that's really, I think, part of it is, is, is the speed um, that the players are taking their actions and the game is, you know, moving on. So you don't have downtime. You know, once you take your turn, it's very quickly your turn again. And because people want to do their thing, they, they have an idea, they have a strategy, they have a, a plan. And they don't want to sit around watching other people do things. They really want to take their turn pretty quickly. And yeah, the bag was a disaster for that. And uh, but other than that, the game was was pretty much you know like it was meant to be pretty early in the development um, because the mechanics are, are frankly fairly simple.
1: Yeah, but I mean, I feel like a simple mixture of mechanics can make for the best games. I mean just like you had said earlier with Catan. Yeah,
0: absolutely. And that was the intention, right? And, and luckily, I, I, it didn't take too long to come up with how the game was going to work. It did take, you know, probably 8 to 12 months to get the game, all the different, you know, um, tiles, the different building tiles, you know, created and balanced because it's really easy to have OP um, special powers, because all the different kind of buildings are asynchronous and asymmetrical. So balancing the game took a lot longer than designing it.
1: Oh, man. I feel like balancing is my least favorite thing to do in game design. I don't know if that's the same for you.
0: Yeah, no. I mean, we're, we're working on a game called Mosaic right now, which is the first heavier game that 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 we're doing at Forbidden. Um, it's a civilization-themed game, and it's it's got a lot more moving parts and a lot more complex mechanics and we've been play testing it and balancing it for, you know, like 18 months.
1: Yeah, I saw that monstrosity when I was at Gen Con. That took up <laughs> so much space on a table. I'm just like, what size table does a person need to play this game?
0: Well, to be fair, what you saw was our intentionally oversized version. Oh, we,
1: okay, good. I was about to say, like, how big is this box going to be?
0: It's it will be a huge box because there's again, similar to the you know the old days at Eagle. The contents are just, there's a ton of things in there. It's like coins and 400 plus miniatures and all kinds of cards, like, you know, just giant card decks. And it's, it's kind of a a mashup of, you know, um, engine building from like terraforming Mars, and a civilization game, and you know, just uh, area control. So it's got all these different kind of parts to the game. It, it actually meshed together really, really well. And it, it's similar to Raccoon. It's one of those where people take their actions very quickly, and it, it just has this tempo of moving around. You know, it's your turn. It's your turn. It's your turn. Um, because you can only do one thing, and that's I, I really borrowed that from Raccoon Tycoon, even though this is a completely different game. Um, that action selection mechanic allows the the tempo of the game to be very quick. Even if you have a choice in that game you have a choice of like eight different actions. and there's much more depth and complexity to each one. But yeah, I mean, I think players don't have the patience to play those old long six hour you know, marathon games. Even though this is a complex game, it finishes in two hours.
1: That is impressive. I will say that civilization games and like miniatures, war games, I tend to avoid them because it does take so long for each person's turn and because you're playing for like three to six hours or sometimes even longer.
0: Totally. I I agree. Like I said, I'm an old school war gamer and strategy gamer. I don't have the patience anymore for that stuff. It's just no one wants to sit. Well, I shouldn't say no one. Fewer and fewer people want to sit and play a game for six or eight hours and, you know, to, you take a turn and then, it, you know, 30 minutes later, it's your turn again. It, I mean, it's just not fun.
1: Completely agree. And all your games have these amazing components, especially like the wooden tokens. Is Was that just a conscious choice from the very beginning? It, it was. I mean,
0: kind of along with all these other things that we're thinking about, you know, with our brand and the types of games and the audience and the merchandising really having the highest quality art and quality components in the game makes a big difference when you're um, competing against thousands of new games a year if if your game is substandard in any way you know people will move on They'll, they'll pick something else so for us yes we want to appeal to a broad audience but we want them to be amazed by the look and the and the you know components and because it's board gaming is an art form really at the you know that's one major aspect uh, and differentiator between that and some other forms of entertainment you're you're collecting a part of your collection is this beautiful thing and some of its art and 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 you know visual appeal but some of it's tactile you know having really cool toys that you can manipulate is just, it's just fun.
1: I completely agree. I love anytime I see a new component. I remember seeing a car meeple that could hold a little meeple and it inspired an entire game design for me just because I thought that component was so cool.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and sometimes it is that simple where it's just like, oh, that one thing is just makes me want to own this game or just play it more often. We, we lucked into something like that with Raccoon Tycoon. Um, we have a starting player marker and it was just one of those kind of throwaway things on the Kickstarter. We're like, oh yeah, we will have this, you know, this, this you know, raccoon that you can use and it's made of wood. And the factory sent me a sample based on the measurements that I sent them, you know, and I sent them the measurements based on me just taking my thumb and index finger going, well, it should be about this big. Yeah. And they sent it to me and based on my dimensions, and it was a chunk of wood like you could kill someone with this giant piece of wood and, and I'm like, "Oh man, I, I I we can't have this in the game. That's crazy." And then I thought it's awesome. <laughs> and I'm like, we're doing this. And we put it in the game and people they love the money and they love the giant wooden raccoon, you know, first player mark.
1: And what is your strategy normally for putting anything on Kickstarter? Well that's a great question.
0: Um, Kickstarter is is a phenomenal platform for several things. it's It's great for building awareness for a new product. Uh, it kind of is a great linkage with your launch marketing to kind of you know announce that the game is coming. But you would get immediate market valid feedback. So you know if you created something that people want, you're gonna instantly understand in that first few weeks of the Kickstarter, how many people want to buy it, right? And if 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 it's if it's dying, if your kickstarter is failing, you know that there's an issue, and you don't go and make ten thousand games. Previous to Kickstarter, I mean, when I started Eagle back in two thousand, we had to just guess. We had to go, well, we think this is pretty cool. We think there's a market for it. Let's make ten thousand. And then if you sold, you know, three, and we're sitting on seven, you were done. Like that's you know, a a company ending mistake. So Kickstarter is phenomenal for marketing and market feedback. Uh, And then it's also the funding aspect, of course, right? Where you're basically pre-selling a product so that you can fund the production. That was the other challenge early in the industry where, you know, you have this game you wanted to produce, but you had to fund it. You had to come up with $100,000 or $50,000 at least to, you know, do the graphic design, pay for the art do the manufacturing and ship it to the warehouse and you were out of pocket, you know, a hundred plus thousand dollars potentially or more before you knew if anyone wanted to buy the thing. And it's extremely challenging for a small publisher to take that kind of risk. Whereas with Kickstarter now, you know, you get market validation and pre-sales that fund the production right up front. So it's, it's a wonderful platform. And, you know, our strategy for it is market aggressive you know, create great assets, even if the game's not fully finished, you know, we're still maybe working on, like with Mosaic, we were still working on fine tuning and balancing the game because that really was going to take a long time and even developing some of the visual uh, finished um, assets in the game. But we marketed aggressively. We spent a serious amount of money to drive people um, to the Kickstarter. And if you're going to do that, then the thing that that you're driving people to look at has to be pretty good. So it doesn't have to be 100% done, but it has to be like 90% finished or at least look like it. Um, so a lot of work before you ever do the Kickstarter, there's a year you know to two years of work leading up to that launch date and just a ton of of marketing and social media and sometimes even in the industry magazines or whatever um that distributors have or trade shows and showing the game and demoing the game bgg all these different partners so that you can get enough eyeballs on it so that then the dollar's makes sense.
1: No, that definitely makes sense. And I've noticed with a lot of your Kickstarters, I mean, you have amazing artwork, you have solid goals and stretch goals, but then you tend to have really good reviews and like playthrough videos. And I know that me personally, I've I read so many rule books. I kind of now have gotten into the habit of watching a video on it and then reading the rule book. So almost I have like context clues before even starting. And I know that that helps me. Anytime I look at a Kickstarter, I tend to watch a few of their videos.
0: Yeah. And what's phenomenal too in the modern board game um, industry is all these great content creators that are really phenomenal at taking a prototype and learning it and then explaining it or, you know, uh, talking about why it's, you know, good or bad or what the, you know, what the game is all about. Um, It's, it's phenomenal. I mean, there's, we work with a whole list of, Some of the best in the industry and couldn't do it without because creating all that content ourselves would would be, you know, so much extra time and effort and money um, for just the facilities and, and, you know, because a lot of these guys have like almost professional level
1: equipment. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I know. I definitely couldn't do anything nearly... Is nice is what I am seeing. And so, I mean, we know this game has been published for a while. It's currently in target. I mean, this game is doing really, really well. But how long did it take from that inspiration to the initial publication, do you think?
0: It took, well, a couple of years. It was, you know, um, uh, in development for quite a while. As we said, we we were adding content and balancing it. Even though, like I said, the original design was pretty close to the where we ended up. And originally, when I was designing the game, it was called something else. And I wasn't thinking of publishing it. I was thinking of having another publisher um, do it. And they agreed and then spent a couple of years kind of thinking about it and, you know, not... Doing anything and ultimately said, yeah, it doesn't look like we're going to be able to do this. And, you know, then they tossed it back to me and I thought, okay, well, I guess I'm starting a publishing company because this game's pretty darn good and we should do this.
1: I love that. I love that so much.
0: (laughs) Yeah, because there's so many game designs out there too, as we said, and, you know, thousands of them get published every year, but thousands and thousands of them never see the light of day because, you know, the publishers have their hands full. There's so many games now.
1: That is very true. And especially just now, I feel like a lot of publishers are pulling back with what's been going on in the world and are only putting out maybe two, three games. So they have to drop designs or they're not really accepting pitches anymore. So I I get it. Yeah. It's,
0: you know, it's, it's hard. And at Eagle, we published, I think two or three outside designs, um, and it, it was fairly rare for us. Mostly we we're publishing my designs and at forbidden, we only published my designs. So we started the company with that as the goal is just to get these games, um, that, that I had designed, uh, published. And now we're getting to the point where we're still not looking at outside designs, but on the horizon, we very well may. Okay. Um, so it's, you know, but yeah, people approach all the time at trade shows and conventions and they're like, hey, I've got this great game. And we're like, yeah, we're just not there yet. So it's, it's pretty tough being a game inventor these days, unless you're really well known. Right. If you're a famous designer, you can probably find a publisher pretty easily. If you're not, it's it's going to be challenging these days.
1: Definitely, for sure. Coming from experience, yes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, how many games do you typically work on at a time?
0: That's a good question. Um, I think it depends, but generally, I've got one on the front burner. That's you know the one I'm focused on, and then I've got two, three, four kind of on the back burner that I'm fiddling with, and um, kind of I, I, I kind of equate our I don't know our business or our, um, you know, being a designer, like being an author, you start writing your book and you're in love with it. The idea of everything, you're just so in love with it. And then after writing it and working on it, and editing it, you get usually pretty tired of it. And you're like, Ugh, I, I, I'm not going to finish this because I have this great new idea. And you're constantly, you know, after months of working on the same thing, you're, you're like this new shiny thing shows up and you're like, oh, I really want to focus on that. I have a great idea. And you start designing that. But you really it's, it's a question of discipline. You have to come back around. And if you're going to publish the thing, finish it while not forgetting about the new shiny things. And so I'm constantly I have. Like these yellow legal pads that have kind of the the original design concepts and some of the initial mechanics and everything that I will allow myself a day or two or whatever to kind of explore them. And then I put them on the pile and I'm like, okay, I can't prototype this at this moment. I have to finish the current game before I'm going to allow myself to dive into this next thing. So they start to accumulate. I've probably got 20 or 30, you know, just early treatments on the pile. And then I've got, like I said, maybe three or four that I've taken and developed a little further and I'm almost ready to prototype.
1: That's very interesting. I I know I do very similar things and it's so hard when you see that nice shiny new object because... You just have this like fire inside you, and you want to work on it. So, I uh, congratulations for putting it on a pile because I have a hard time sometimes.
0: Yeah, it's it is hard because the new shiny idea is your you know hot new boyfriend, and uh,
1: <laughs> it's hard to walk away. So funny, and so uh, for let's go back to Raccoon Tycoon. Like, what was your favorite and your least favorite experience of the journey of this one particular design?
0: Um, I think my favorite thing is that we actually did what we set out to do. Um, It's, it's a really um, fun game. It's simple to learn, but, you, it's very replayable and you can play it with anybody and that was the goal and I think we we knocked it out of the park we checked all the boxes, we made it beautiful we made it fun it's, you know, I constantly love hearing stories from people who you know, they're like, hey, we played with our neighbors who have never played a, a real board game before and they loved it, now they're in right, that kind of thing just makes my heart sing, I'm like, yes, that's what we were trying to do with this thing, um, and a reviewer in the UK, when we, after we launched it said, every copy of Monopoly in the world should be replaced with Raccoon Tycoon and the world would be a happier place. That quote, I will never forget that quote.
1: But just think about it. Monopoly has so many spin-offs with different IPs. Like, what IP would you put on Raccoon Tycoon next? Would it be The Office? Would it be Friends? Would it be Star Wars? Like, what would you want on it?
0: Funny you should ask. Um, we are just launching our kind of call it grown-up version of Raccoon Tycoon, our gamer version of Raccoon Tycoon, uh, which is called Wizard Wizard. And so the new theme is that you've got anthropomorphic dragons who are uh, also wizards. So these wizard dragons live in this similar land of Astoria, but, you know, in the fantasy age instead of the age of steam. And they are um, competing with each other to gather together um, magical reagents and cast and research spells and delve into dungeons to accumulate money so they can do other things and it's raccoon tycoon but with more depth and more strategy a little more complicated but still if you've played raccoon very easy to get into and we're just literally arrived in our warehouse today and orders are shipping out to um, our Kickstarter backers um, in the next few days and to retailers and distributors.
1: That's so amazing. So a little bit of Harry Potter in there then.
0: (laughs) Again, you nailed it. That is exactly the kind of like magic pixie dust we were thinking of. We're like, hey, what kinds of themes appeal to this, you know, um, kind of uh, you know, audience that we're trying to approach that's nerdy and gamery, but maybe not, you know, not a war game or not a hardcore complex you know hardcore game um but you know like i said this one has a little more meat to it than raccoon but still kind of not even a mid-weight game
1: i oh, also just love the name so funny lizard wizard
0: <laughs> yeah we actually i think on bgg i know, a year or two ago we someone came up with the thing of hey what's going to be the next one in the series and people had a lot of fun doing uh rhyming and you know as an driven uh titles for the next game that we
1: would do oh that's so cute I love that
0: it was it was fun and so yeah we're you know we're gonna have to come up with a good one because uh, the first two really work
1: I'm sure you'll get plenty of help if you don't come up with it yourself
0: <laughs> right
1: oh, <geez. laughs> and so then what was your least favorite experience then as far as this game went
0: <sighs> least favorite um I don't know it was it was it was a pretty positive experience except I guess um, having to wait a few years to, um, to see it published. Um, that was hard, right? You know, you, you, I thought I had a publisher. I thought, Oh, this will be easy. Cause I don't have to do the hard work of selling and marketing and manufacturing and project managing. I'll just hand them a game and it'll become a reality. It'll be the easiest thing I've ever done. And that didn't happen. Right. And so I guess that was the, the, the thing I liked least was, um, that I had to actually, uh, do all the hard work. Because you know, being a publisher is the work. It's it's you know, game design is work too. And like we said, there's editing and testing and balancing. But it's, it's it's kind of fun. You're you're play testing with your friends, and you get to play your creation over and over. But doing all the business side stuff and doing all the project management stuff um, it's, it's real work.
1: Yep. Doesn't sound as fun for sure. <laughs>
0: <laughs> it's not, but you know, it's my career. So I am actually used to it. Um, and it doesn't, you know, it, it doesn't bother me to do it, but it's, it's definitely not the fun stuff
1: for sure. And then if you could offer just one piece of advice to designers, what would it be?
0: Um, it's, it has to do with, with play testing, right? You, you have to create a workable prototype. A lot of times I'll have Really avid designers or inventors come to me and say, hey, I've got this great idea for a game and it's going to do this and it's going to do this. And I'm like, cool, um, make a prototype and put it in front of me, you know, and I'll be happy to give you feedback. But that step seems to really challenge some people where they're like, well, I don't know how to do that or that's really hard. And, I, you know, I'm afraid it, might, it won't work right. And I'm like, yeah, it absolutely won't. Like you're going to think it's the most brilliant thing in the world and we're going to put it on the table and it's going to suck. It's going to be broken, and it's going to be horrible, and then you'll iterate it and go at it again. And so, game design—most times there are exceptions, but most times game design is about iteration. You you create the prototype, and you redo it, and you redo it, and you redo it. It's an endless cycle um, until you get it right, until the game is fun and balanced, and you know, and streamlined. Because the other sin that we're all kind of you know that we all commit is that we put everything into the game Every idea that we have, we're like, "Oh, this will be cool. That'll be cool. I'll add this. I'll add this." And pretty soon, it's a Frankenstein. And, and you know, it's it's not it's not elegant. And I think so. Streamlining is part of that process too, where you have to chop off parts of your baby, and and it's hard to do. So, iterating and streamlining is the hard work of design.
1: I completely agree. Mostly because I've thought I had really good ideas, and then I did put it down. I was like, "Good God, <laughs> this is yeah. not great."
0: Um, I mean, Mosaic, the first prototype we put on the table, was the worst thing I've ever played ever. We, it was so comically bad, we, were, we couldn't stop laughing at how broken and awful this thing was. Ugh.
1: But also something that's important about that is hopefully you didn't play for two hours. You cut it off when you knew it wasn't working, because I have definitely suffered through too many play tests where the designer should have stopped earlier.
0: <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> uh, yes, we did. We, we, we basically just put it, we chucked it and said, Okay. But yeah, you learn things, right? And every experience of the play test is, a, is, is, is learning. And hopefully, you know, the challenging part is, can you glean the right lessons? Can you then make the next thing better? And, you know, it's, it's hard too, because sometimes you, um, originally Mosaic was supposed to be worker placement. I was like, yeah, I'm ready to do another worker placement game like Age of Empires 3. And this is going to be it. It's going to be awesome. And it stunk. It was a terrible worker placement game. It was boring and it was too long. And I was so frustrated. And I'm like, okay, do I keep moving down the road to improve it and make it a better worker placement game? Or do I toss that whole thing out, the whole main mechanic of this game and keep the content that I like and rework it with a different core mechanic? That is one of the hardest things I've ever had to do is, is... essentially restart the core mechanic of the game you know from scratch after six or eight months of development time oh ouch yeah yeah it was hard but it was absolutely the right thing to do in the game and the game experience is so much the better for it because it would have been a better game by the time we were done but i don't think it would have been nearly as good it would have been kind of a mediocre work replacement game instead of a really, really good action selection game.
1: I really do think that that comes from just designing and spending months and years in the industry, knowing when to cut the fat and when to change directions, even if it hurts. Yeah, it it is.
0: It's like I I equate it to like an internship or a uh, apprenticeship, right? Initially, you don't know much and you learn by doing. And over, you know, since starting to publish games and design board games uh, for real, you know, 20 years ago, um, I'm I'm just better now than I was before because I know how to do things and, you know. just learn by doing.
1: For sure. And is there anything else you want to tell our audience before we wrap up this episode? Um well
0: I was going to mention Wizard Wizard, but we got to it. So yeah, it's if if you like raccoon or if you end up buying raccoon tycoon and enjoy it, um Wizard Wizard is brand new and and hitting the market um this coming weekend. So um it's it's a load of fun. We were showing it at Gen Con and at Essen and people were loving it. So um, we're pretty excited and has that amazing any stag artwork um really it's the most beautiful game that i've ever worked on so uh give it a look
1: oh wow high praise yeah and by the time this airs it'll definitely be out and about for people to buy so that's awesome definitely and then yeah so uh thank you for joining us for this episode of game design unbox inspiration of publication episode 26 raccoon tycoon and thanks again glenn for joining us for anyone trying to find you where can you be reached
0: Um, GDrover65 at gmail.
1: Awesome. And then for a parting question, I do want to know if you could replace your name on any game and you basically magically became the designer of it, what game would you choose?
0: These days it would be Terraforming Mars. And um, it just because it's just such a clever, you know, group of mechanics tied so well into the theme. Um, it's and just such a great idea for a game you know it's it's just just from top to bottom just a great design and um, love the art, love the implementation and the mechanics and it's not perfectly balanced right There are some things that that really, Might have been a little bit better, but it's so damn good in in almost every way that I I don't care. And it's I wish I had designed it.
1: It is a really good one. I just spent, uh, well, I was at Origins demoing the Ares Expedition version of it, which everyone kept misreading as expansion. And I had to explain many times that it was a standalone game. But I agree that that is an amazing game.
0: Yeah, it it inspired me to to, uh, do some things with Mosaic. All right, it's you're, we're always you know borrowing well, oh, uh, sure. on, on, and that's why the industry's gotten so much better so quickly. Is all these clever you know, mechanics and executions and ideas really build on each other to make, you know, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing, better and
1: better. Oh, for sure. It's just a marriage of different beautiful mechanics. And we want to be a part of those weddings. (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Well, awesome. So yeah, thank you to everyone who's been listening. I'm Danielle Reynolds, and you can find me, um, well, everywhere, Facebook, DMR Creative Group, Twitter, at Creative DMR, and then on Instagram, at Token Gamer, that's G-A-Y-M-E-R, Glenn, Thank you so much. This was so insightful.
0: It was my pleasure, Danielle. Thanks for having me. For sure. This has been another episode of Game Design Unboxed, inspiration to publication, brought to you by GPI. Whether your game needs graphic design, product development, sourcing, or manufacturing, find out how you can take your awesome game idea and get it made by GPI. Go to madebygpi.com, the leading service provider in the toy and game industry. And if you would like to hear more great gaming podcasts, check out the No Direction Network at nodirectionpodcast.com.